0: for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 22. If you want to turn there, 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 23. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpeh of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he had left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gebeah under the tamarisk tree, on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, "Hear now, people of Benjamin,' Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and he inquired the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, "'Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as as at this day?' Then Ahimelech answered the king, "'And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, the captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him?' "'No!' Let the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Himelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is with David, also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You, turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nam, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Let's pray.
1: Father, I ask that Your Spirit helps me now as we consider this chapter, we consider who You are and what You're doing. Father, I pray that faith would be gifted to us For those of us who have never savingly trusted in Christ that that would happen this morning. For those who have trusted in Christ that their faith would be strengthened in Your goodness. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most common... Things a person hears about God today is the questioning of His goodness. Even if it's from the people of God, it's not uncommon when people suffer to question the goodness of God. Uh, This shouldn't surprise us. Satan's plan from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden was the deception of Adam and Eve to begin to doubt the goodness of God. It's a wise plan on Satan's behalf. If salvation comes through faith in God and His goodness, then certainly destruction comes from denying the goodness of God. It's easy to see why people question the goodness of God, though. I mean, if you look at what happens in this world, you look at how people suffer, the question is not one where that we can't understand or we can't sympathize with people who tend down this trajectory. We can understand how this happens. Some people become deists. They look at the difficult things that are happening in their life. It usually happens when it gets personal. The suffering becomes personal. And if they're going to continue to believe in God, they believe in a God that created this thing but stepped back and somehow doesn't have anything to do with all the bad stuff that's happening. So they become deists in a sense. Or some become atheists. They just say, there is no God. If there was a God that was all-powerful, then our world wouldn't look the way it looks today. Or many others, some true believers, choose a third method. They'll believe in a form of the God of the Bible, but the form they believe in is the God who... Has is only sovereign over the good things. And they say man's free will is the reason why. The only reason why difficult things happen. God doesn't have anything to do with them. So their God, in a sense, sacrifices sovereignty, total control to rescue God from being somehow viewed upon as bad. So what I want us to consider this morning is what does the Bible say about these things? What are we supposed to think when all the priests of the Lord from uh, the line of Ahimelech, what, what are we supposed to think when they all get slayed? Where is God in that moment? Where's God in the moment of your life on the worst day of your life when the unthinkable happens? I know some of your struggles that you come in here with. Some of you have shared them with me. What weighs your heart down? There's many of you where I don't know. So often we're suffering in ways that none of us ever know because we hold it in. But I know all of us will experience extreme suffering. And the tempter will come to you and say, where's your God now? Is God good? If you remember from two weeks ago, the sermon title was Taste and See that the Lord is Good. David is in extremely difficult circumstances, on the run from Saul. He's just recently escaped the king of Gath, Achish, by pretending like he was insane. That was the previous chapter. And if you remember in Psalm 56, David wrote this psalm. And and I just want to remind you of a few uh, verses. In in verse 5 of Psalm 56, here's what David wrote in the midst of this trial. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In the midst of this struggle, David amazingly knew that God was good. He knew that God kept track of every tear, every suffering. See, the Bible doesn't throw like a happy blanket on top of your suffering and say, Oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. You know, it's all going to be made better one day in heaven. The Bible recognizes real suffering. But in the midst of that, we're reminded that God is doing something. And He is in control in these moments. The theme of this chapter, I think, is the providence of God. The providence of God. And so I'm going to ask you to find comfort in God's providence. Find comfort in the fact that the Bible does give us a God that is sovereign over the good and the bad. So point one, find comfort in God's providential provision. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22 of First Samuel. So Dave depart, David departed from there. He just escaped from Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to meet him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became the commander over them, and they were with him about 400 men. Now here's what's going on. David flees Gath. If Gath is right here and Bethlehem is here, here's where his family is. The cave of Adullam is kind of right between them and a little to the south. And David's family is in just as much danger as he is. Saul wants to destroy David and his family. So David goes into the mountains, a treacherous region, and find shelter in a cave. His family flees Bethlehem for it's too close to Saul to feel safe. They gather with him and 400 outcasts. Isn't that interesting? The outcasts in Israel. Look, look at how they're described. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them you can't help but see the picture of christ the only ones who are saved are those who are low and recognize their sin and their hopelessness and they run to their commander so we get a picture of that here as david's army is just beginning to be built with a bunch of outcasts but there's a problem David's father and mother in their old age cannot survive in such a treacherous region. Uh, look at what verse three says. And David went from there to Mizpah, to Moab, a common enemy of Israel. Why would why would David go to Moab? And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now why would David take a 3,000 foot descent to the uh, west down to the Dead Sea with his elderly parents go on the south side of the Dead Sea and then take another uh, 3,000-foot ascent up to the plateaus of Moab with his parents? Why would he go into enemy territory to find refuge? Well, let's go back over a 100 years. Let's go back about 150 years in time and remember a story of a young couple named Naomi and Elimelech. They were from the tribe of Judah. There was a famine in the land and this young couple didn't have food and so they went to Moab to sojourn there just so their family could survive. They had two sons, Milan and Chilion. And they married Moabite women, Ruth and Orpa. And if you remember the story of Ruth, what happens? Naomi's husband dies and her two sons die. It's a Job-type story. It's... A story where if you were knowing Naomi, whose name, uh, means blessed, you would be thinking, God is not good. That a famine would come, that my husband would die, that my two sons would die. In fact, you can see her pain in Ruth chapter 1 verse 12. Here's what she says to her daughters after they die. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, and even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And then in verse 19 we read this, as Ruth stays with Naomi, Orpah goes back to her family. In verse 19 it says, so the two of them went went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the the women said, is this Naomi? she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? And the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Can you feel the pain of this woman who has no one to redeem her family's land, which was so important in Israel, that your land would stay in your own family. Well, you know the story that there was a distant relative, Boaz, that married Ruth and redeemed the land. So Naomi, in a sense, was able to have a son. Here's what we read at the end of the book of Ruth in verse 13. So Boaz... Took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter in law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him the name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, most of you have made the connection that in this unlikely Moabite woman marrying this man from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, that from David comes the Christ. We've seen the beauty of this story. God's sovereignty works out amazing things through Naomi's suffering. But have you thought that in the midst of Naomi's suffering, that God would be doing something as small as providing a place for David to bring his father and mother in their old age for protection. You see, Naomi could have never known that this would happen. She could have never understood that the Christ was going to come from her. And so you see a sovereign God over horrible circumstances of pain working the most glorious, precious salvation and even comforting in a seemingly minor way for her great-grandson when he's on, a, on the run in a great trial in his life. Be comforted. Find comfort in God's providential provision. Find comfort in that you serve a God that on the worst day of your life is working good for you if you love the Lord. That's what Romans 8.28 tells us. For those who love the Lord, all things work together for good. God's providence here is amazing. We can read through these first few verses and miss why David was accepted there. And then in verse 5 it says, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herth. David is on the run. He doesn't have a home to lay his head right now. A lot like Christ said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In a similar way, David is on the run. And I was thinking in church history, what examples do we have? You see, you have the group of people who say, God isn't sovereign over bad things. Or, I've just rejected God because I've seen difficult things. But what about the people who have suffered greatly and found comfort in the sovereignty of God? We have so many examples in history. Some of you may be familiar with John Bunyan. He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. He was a tinker in Bedford, England in the 1600s. And after he got saved and began preaching, it became illegal to preach outside of the Anglican church. And he was told that he needs to quit preaching or he'll go to jail. He kept preaching. They arrested him. They put him in jail for three months. They said, we'll let you out if you agree not to preach again if you'll quit uh, preaching outside the Anglican church. And he wouldn't do it. And he agreed for 12 years of his life. He's married. He's got four daughters. His first daughter is blind. Shortly after the fourth daughter was born, his wife dies, passes away. He marries another woman named Elizabeth. And for the first 12 years of their marriage, pretty much, he willingly stays in prison because he will not agree not to preach the gospel. So here's a man who's suffered. Here's a man who could be shaking his fist at God and listen to a few quotes from John Bunyan about the sovereignty of God and suffering. Here's what he says, "'It is not what enemies will, nor what they are resolved upon, but what God will and what God appoints shall be done. No enemy can bring suffering upon a man when the will of God is otherwise.' so no man can save himself out of their hands when God will deliver him up for His glory. Just as Jesus showed Peter by what death He would glorify God, we shall not suffer even as it pleases Him. Here's what he's saying. Your enemies cannot hurt you unless God sovereignly wills that they hurt you. And you cannot escape the enemy if God has sovereignly planned that the enemy should catch you. You begin to get a picture of how he's viewing his circumstances in his life. And then he wrote a little pamphlet uh, on the sovereignty of God. Here's what he said about it. God has appointed those who should suffer. Revelation 6 eleven was one point. God is appointed when they shall suffer. Acts eighteen nine. God is appointed where they should suffer. Luke thirteen thirty three. God is appointed what kind of sufferings they will undergo. Acts nine sixteen. And then he says this, our sufferings as to the nature of them are all written down in God's book. And though the writing seem as unknown characters to us, yet God understands them very well. And there he writes Mark 9.13 where we read this, but I tell you that Elijah has come. This is John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. John was beheaded in... The Gospels tell us, Mark tells us, that God had written this down. So Bunyan viewed his suffering and circumstances as being written down in the book of of uh, in God's book. And then he says this. Our Piper says this, talking about Bunyan. He says we are apt to overshoot in the days that are calm to think of ourselves far higher and more strong than we than we be when tr- when the trying day is upon us we could not live without such turnings of the hands of god upon us he's saying when days are good you know we think we can get by in the flesh but when things get bad and the only thing you have left is god then you begin to learn about god's provision then he says this We should be overgrown with flesh if we had not our seasons of winters. It is said that in some countries, trees will not grow, or trees will grow but not bear fruit because there is no winter there. In God's sovereign plan, He knows that very little fruit bearing comes when everything is going just the way we want them. And then here's how Bunyan pleads. Now, now listen to this. Let me beg of thee that thou will not be offended either with God or men if the cross is laid heavy upon thee. Not with God, for He doth nothing without a cause, nor with men, for they are servants of God for your good. Take therefore what comes from thee from God, Thankfully, this is what it looks like when someone is comforted by the providence of God. A question I've been asked so many times since this church was planted is what's the big deal about believing in a sovereign God? The big deal is, What are you going to do when your son or daughter is diagnosed with cancer? Are you going to say the devil did it and God can do nothing about it? Is that going to be your comfort? You might not know or understand why things happen the way they happen, but what you can know from your Bible is that God is good and that often, people didn't see the providence of God in what God was doing in their lives. The reason why I'm proud of the church name Sovereign Grace is because there is no true comfort apart from a sovereign God that is sovereign even over the difficult things. So let's look at point 2 find comfort in God's providential working through His enemies. Now this story shifts into the presence of Saul. Here's what we read in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men and, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you the fields and vineyards? Will he uh, make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? He's telling the tribe of Benjamin, he's saying, you better be on my side because if you go with David, he's from the tribe of Judah. Is he going to give you all these good things? Already, Saul has fulfilled Samuel's prophecy. If you remember, when the people asked for a king, he said, here's what they're going to do. They're going to take your sons as officers. They're going to take your vineyards. They're going to take your fields. Well, they were given to the tribe of Benjamin. And so Saul is talking to these men and in verse 8, he says this, that all of you have conspired against me. You know, this is, this is his little pity party. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul can no longer see reality as reality. You see, jealousy has filled his heart When jealousy fills your heart, you cannot see reality as reality. Look, my son has stirred up everyone against me. What's reality? Jonathan is trying to calm things down and help people get along. David lies in wait for me. No, David's running from you because you're trying to kill him. His jealousy has blinded him to the point that he can't see straight. He accuses all of his men as conspiring against him even though they're with him. Why is Saul in this state? It's because he no longer trusts in the Lord. The Spirit is departed from him. He's attempting to be king over God's people without God's guidance. It's impossible. He does not have what it takes to lead Israel without the Spirit of God because God is the true King over Israel. And then the story goes on. Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob. <clears throat> or Then Doeg the Edomite answered, uh, to Ahimelech, the son of a high tub <clears throat> And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So as Saul says, all you are bad servants. None of you will disclose to me anything. Doeg the Edomite says, I'll tell you what I saw. I saw David come and get bread from Ahimelech and get the sword of Goliath from Ahimelech. And as Scott read, this culminates to the point where Ahimelech tries to defend himself and speak reality to him. David's one of your servants. Why wouldn't I pray for him? Why wouldn't I give him a sword? Why wouldn't I give him bread? What has he done? He's only served you well. And then Saul says to his servants, kill him and everyone in his family. Wipe them all out. But none of the servants of Israel would do that. They wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed, the Lord's priesthood. Israelites knew better. They feared God more than they feared Saul in that moment. But Dowag the Edomite, doesn't have the same fear. And so Doeg unleashes slaughter on the family of Ahimelech. Now, what are we to make of this? If we're to ask the question, where is God now? What are we supposed to think about it? Why would something so horrible happen? That David would be on the run from Saul and that this 85 persons would be killed. Well, if you remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn back there and look at verse 31. We get Samuel prophesying to Eli. Eli's sons were wicked. Eli didn't do anything about it. He didn't stop them from profaning the temple of God. And and here's what we read. Behold, the days are coming when I'll cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house then in distress you will look with envious eye on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever the only one of you whom the only one of you whom i shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men there was a promise from god that Eli's family would not have an old man living in it in the priesthood anymore. That is fulfilled when this Edomite, an enemy of God, takes vengeance on the priesthood. It's sin what he does. But here's what I want you to see God, in his sovereignty, fulfills his judgment against the house of Eli, with Israel's enemies, with this Edomite. What kind of God do we have that in this horrible event He's fulfilling His Word and showing that He is sovereign over all things? And and it kind of bothered me that the son of a high tub escaped once I found this connection because I Because it says there would not be an old man in his house. But it says there will be one left that will be left to weep his eyes out. And I'm like, God's Word is amazing how this is fulfilled the way God does this in His providence. And then I read 1 Kings 2.26. Here's what happens to Abiathar, the one who escapes. In 1 Kings 2.26, here's what we read. And to Abiathar, the priest, the king said, go to Anoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this moment put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord before David my father because you shared in all my father's afflictions. So Solomon expelled Abathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh." And I just say, our God is amazing. Through pain and suffering, His will is being done. Now you might be saying, yeah, but Sam, you don't know what happened in my life. You don't know the sinfulness that has been done to me that has caused my suffering. And you want me to believe that somehow God is providentially over all these things. You might be thinking that but here's how I want to reason with you. As we consider the question, is God sovereign even over sins to work them for His good? I want you to think about the predicament. The worst predicament in the world is to be a sinner standing before a holy God. Is there anything that could be worse? If you are a sinner... Where can you go from there? Let's say you're, you're, you're like a builder. Uh, you want to build something out of something you're given. You're given some clay to build with. What if the clay you're given is you're a sinner and the Bible says the wages of sin is death? Where are you going to go from there? All you can do is die. The worst predicament... Is not family members who have died, but it's the question, why have family members died? Why is there death in this world? Where do, what can we do with sin? Well, the Bible answers that. We can do nothing. You can't build anything out of that except fulfill what's been handed to you, which is die. There is no worse predicament in the world. So many people in the world look at, well, if God's good, how can He do that? They don't even recognize their worst predicament. What's the worst sin that ever happened? The worst sin, the most evil act that's ever happened is when God became man and showed the world what He was like And when the world looked at Him, they said, that's God? We're going to kill Him. The killing of the Son of Man is the worst sin that has ever been committed. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, we're asking the question, is God sovereign even over the worst things in the world? And I want to take you to two texts in Acts. Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Here's what we read. Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you know yourself. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God definitely planned the occasion of His Son's murder. That's the question we ought to be asking. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You did it, people. Killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosening the pangs of death. Jesus is handed the clay of sin where death can only come from this, but Jesus comes according to the plan of God. And all of a sudden, death begins to be loosened up. Can God use sin to end up at a place where life can come? Because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And then go to chapter 4, verse 23 of Acts. We see a similar statement. When these disciples were released, they went to their friends and were reported what the chief priests and elders said to them, that they weren't supposed to speak anymore of Christ. And when they had heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. And what did they say? So they just suffered a little bit, but God brought them out of it. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. He's saying David prophesied that they would reject the Christ. And then he says this, verse 27, clear as a bell. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. Real people with a real will gathered together and killed Jesus. But what does verse 28 say? They all gathered together to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here's the argument. If God is sovereign over the worst sin that's ever been committed, and He took from that, He built from that life out of death, then you might not know the answers to your suffering, but you can know this, God is good. there's, There's not a thing that happens to you that isn't written down in His book that He's not sovereign over. That doesn't mean it's easy when we suffer, but you can go to sleep at night saying, God will work in my life when things are good and especially when things are bad to draw me to trust in Him. I hope your faith has been strengthened through this text. And for those of you who are here, who have maybe never trusted in Christ in a saving way, maybe you've gone to church your whole life and it's been like religious ritual, then you need to hear what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said to him, you need to be born of God. You need a supernatural miracle to happen. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're spiritually dead. The things of God are boring to you. You don't love God from the heart. You need a new heart. You need the spiritual rebirth. You need to be born of the Spirit is what Jesus told Nicodemus. That's the question I want to ask you today. Can you honestly say that Jesus Christ is the treasure of your life? Has God changed your heart? Has the new birth happened? Because Jesus said, there's no one who's saved apart from the new birth. God's supernaturally changing someone from the heart. And this morning we have the privilege to be reminded of it in our communion service. What this represents is a picture, a visible picture of what God has done for us in Christ. And so if you're here and you're saying, well, how, how can I be born again? Here's what you do. You cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. My only hope is if You give me new life. I realize the only way my sins can be forgiven is by Jesus dying as a substitute in my place for sins see when jesus died on the cross men killed him and god killed him god poured out his wrath on sins on jesus christ so that god could bring new life to you so he can wipe your sins away give you the new birth make you a child of god so if you will plead with god to save you god is a merciful god He sent Christ to save and he's mighty to save.